welcome to Fast Asleep. We are so happy to have you with us again. And it's William Faulkner, wonderfully wordy William Faulkner. He's back with us. You know, if you scroll back to episode 113, you will hear his unique love story. A Rose for Emily. You could even say our next two episodes are a love story. A love story, I guess, of a son's love for his father and the terrible choice he has to make. Well, Faulkner, the Nobel laureate, also claimed the Pulitzer Prize twice, as well as two National Book Awards. As many of you know, he was born and raised in Mississippi. Faulkner joined the Royal Canadian Air Force at the outbreak of World War I, never serving any combat time. After returning to Mississippi, he attended the University of Mississippi for three semesters, and then, amazingly, in just five years, he had his first four novels published, and the awards started in 1949, and they continued through the 50s and early 60s. He died from a heart attack in 1962. So, it is time. Let us just let his wonderful words draw us away from whatever is going on to this son and his father. Tuck in everybody for part one of The Barn Burning. The store in which the Justice of the Peace's court was sitting smelled of cheese. <laughs> the boy, crouched on his nail keg at the back of the crowded room, knew he smelled cheese. And more, from where he sat he could see the ranked shelves close-packed with the solid, squat, dynamic shapes of tin cans whose labels his stomach read not from the lettering, which meant nothing to his mind, but from the scarlet devils and the silver curve of fish. This, the cheese which he knew he smelled, and the hermetic meat which his intestines believed he smelled, coming in intermittent gusts, momentary in grief between the other, constant one, the smell and sense just a little of fear, because mostly of despair and grief, the old fierce pull of blood. He could not see the table where the justice sat and before which his father and his father's enemy, our enemy, he thought in that despair, Arn, mine and hisn, he's my father, stood. But he could hear them, the two of them, that is, because his father had said, no word yet. But what proof have you, Mr. Harris? I told you. The hog got into my corn, 
caught it up and I sent it back to him. He had no fence that would hold it. I told him so, warned him. The next time I put the hog in my pen. When he came to get it, I gave him enough wire to patch up his pen. Uh, the next time I put the hog up and kept it. I rode down to his house and saw the wire I gave him still rolled onto the spool in his yard, I told him. He could have the hog when he paid me a dollar pound fee. Well, that evening a man came with the dollar and got the hog. He was a strange man, he said. Uh, he say to tell you wood and hay can burn. And I said, what? That what he say to tell you? The man said, wood and hay can burn. That night, my barn burned. I got the stock out, but I lost the barn. Uh, well, where is this man? Have you got him? He was a strange man, I tell you. I don't know what became of him. Well, uh, that's, that's not proof. Don't you see? That's just not proof. Well, you get that boy up here. He knows. For a moment, the boy thought, too, that the man meant his older brother until Harris said, No, not him. The little one. The boy. And crouching, small for his age, small and wiry like his father, in patched and faded jeans, even too small for him, with straight, uncombed brown hair and eyes gray and wild as storm scud. He saw the man between himself and the table part and become a lane of grim faces, at the end of which he saw the justice, a shabby, collarless, graying man in spectacles, beckoning him. <sighs> he felt no floor under his bare feet. He seemed to walk beneath the palpable weight of the grim, turning faces. His father, stiff in his black Sunday coat, donned not for the trial, but for the moving, did not even look at him. Uh, he aims for me to lie, he thought, again with that frantic grief and despair, and I will have to do it. What's your name, boy? The justice said. Colonel Sartorius Snopes, the boy whispered. Eh? The judge said. Talk louder. Colonel Sartorius? Oh, I reckon anybody named for Colonel Sartorius in this country can't help but tell the truth, can they? The boy said nothing. Enemy, enemy, he thought. For a moment, he could not even see, could not see that the justice's face was kindly, nor discern that his voice was troubled when he spoke to the man named Harris. Do you want me to question this boy? but he could hear. And during those subsequent long seconds, well, there was absolutely no sound in the crowded little room save that of quiet and intent breathing. It was as if he 
had swung outward at the end of a grapevine over a ravine and at the top of the swing had been caught in a prolonged instant of mesmerized gravity, weightless in time. No, Harris said violently, explosively. Damnation! Send him out of here! Now time, the fluid world rushed beneath him again, the voices coming to him again through the smell of cheese and sealed meat, the fear and despair and the old grief of blood. Well, the case is closed. I, I can't find against you, Snopes. But I can give you advice. You leave this country and don't come back to it. The father spoke for the first time his voice cold and harsh, level without emphasis. I aim to. I don't figure to stay in a country among people who... And he said something unprintable and vile, addressed to no one. That'll do, the justice said. Take your wagon and get out of this country before dark. Case dismissed. His father turned, and he followed the stiff black coat, the wiry figure walking a little stiffly from where a Confederate provost's man's musket ball had taken him in the heel on a stolen horse 30 years ago. Followed two backs now, since his older brother had appeared from somewhere in the crowd, no taller than his father, but thicker, chewing tobacco steadily between the two lines of grim-faced men, and out of the store, and across the worn gallery, and down the sagging steps, and among the dogs and half-grown boys in the mild May dust, where as he passed, a voice hissed, Barn Burner! Again, he could not see. Whirling, there was a face in a red haze, moon-like, oh, bigger than the full moon, the owner of it, half again his size, he leaping in the red haze toward the face, feeling no blow, feeling no shock when his head struck the earth, but scrabbling up and leaping again, feeling no blow this time either and tasting no blood, scrabbling up to see the other boy in full flight and himself already leaping into pursuit as his father's hand jerked him back. The harsh, cold voice speaking above him, Go get in the wagon. It stood in a grove of locusts and mulberries across the road. His two hulking sisters in their Sunday dresses and his mother and her sister in calico and sunbonnets were already in it, sitting on and among the sorry residue of the dozen and more movings which even the boy could remember. The battered stove, the broken beds and chairs, the clock inlaid with mother-of-pearl, which would not run, stopped at some fourteen minutes past two o'clock of a dead and forgotten day and time, which had been his mother's dowry. She was crying. Though when she saw him, she drew her sleeve across her face and began to descend from the wagon. Get back, the father said. He's hurt. 
I gotta get some water and wash his... Get back in the wagon, his father said. He got in, too, over the tailgate. His father mounted to the seat where the older brother already sat and struck the gaunt mule's two savage blows with the peeled willow, but without heat. It was not even sadistic. It was exactly that same quality which in later years would cause his descendants to overrun the engine before putting a motor car into motion, striking and reining back in the same movement. The wagon went on. The store, with its quiet crowd of grimly watching men, dropped behind. A curve in the road hid it. Forever, he thought. <sighs> Maybe he's done. Satisfied now. Now that he has... Stopping himself not to say it aloud, even to himself. His mother's hand touched his shoulder. Does it hurt? She said. Nah, he said. It don't hurt. Let me be. Well, can't you wipe some of the blood off before it dries? I'll wash tonight, he said. Let me be, I tell you. The wagon went on. He did not know where they were going. None of them ever did or ever asked because well, it was always somewhere. Always a house of sorts waiting for them a day or two days or even three days away. Likely his father had already arranged to make a crop on another farm before he, ooh, again, he had to stop himself. He, the father, always did. There was something about his wolf-like independence and even courage when the advantage was at least neutral, which impressed strangers. You know, as if they got from his latent ravening ferocity, not so much a sense of dependability as a feeling that his ferocious conviction in the rightness of his own actions would be of advantage to all whose interest lay with his. That night, they camped in a grove of oaks and beeches where a spring ran. The night was still cool, and they had a fire against it of a rail lifted from a nearby fence and cut into lengths. A small fire, neat, miserly, almost a shrewd fire. Oh, such fires were his father's habit, accustomed always, even in freezing weather. Older? The boy might have remarked this and wondered why not a big one. Why should not a man who had not only seen the waste and extravagance of war, but who had in his blood an inherent voracious prodigality with material not his own, have burned everything in reason? That miserly blaze was the living fruit of nights past during those four years in the woods, hiding from all men blue or gray, with his strings of horses, captured horses, he called them. And older still, he might have divined the true reason, that the element of fire spoke to some deep mainspring of his father's being, 
as the element of steel or of powder spoke to other men, as the one weapon for the preservation of integrity, else breath were not worth the breathing, and hence to be regarded with respect and used with discretion. But he did not think this now, and he had seen those same miserly blazes all his life. He merely ate his supper beside it, and it was already, he was already half asleep over his iron plate when his father called him, and once more he followed the stiff back, the stiff and ruthless limp up the slope and on to the starlit road where, turning, he could see his father against the stars, but without face or depth, a shape black, flat, and bloodless as though pale, cut from tin in the iron folds of that frock coat which had not been made for him. The voice, harsh like tin, and without heat, like tin. You were fixing to tell them. You would have told them. He didn't answer. His father struck him with the flat of his hand on the side of his head, hard, but without heat. Exactly as he had struck the two mules at the store, exactly as he would strike either of them with any stick in order to kill a horsefly. His voice still without fear or anger. You're getting to be a man. You've got to learn. You've got to learn to stick to your own blood or you ain't going to have any blood to stick to you. Do you think either of them, any man there this morning would? Don't you know? All they wanted was a chance to get at me because they knew I had them beat. Huh? Later. Twenty years later, he was to tell himself, if I had said they wanted only truth, justice, he would have hit me again. But now, he said nothing. He was not crying. He just stood there. Answer me, his father said. Yes, he whispered. His father turned. Get on to bed. We will be there tomorrow. And tomorrow, they were there. In the early afternoon, the wagon stopped before a paintless two-room house, identical almost with the dozen others it had stopped before, even in the boy's ten years. And again, as on the other dozen occasions, his mother and aunt got down and began to unload the wagon, although his sisters and his father and brother had not moved. Well, likely it ain't fitting for hogs, one of the sisters said. Nevertheless, fit it will, and you'll hog it and like it, his father said. Get out of them chairs and help your ma unload. The two sisters got down, big, bovine, in a flutter of cheap ribbon. One of them drew from the jungled, jumbled wagon bed a battered lantern, the other a worn broom. His father handed the reins to the older son and began to climb stiffly over the wheel. Now when they get unloaded, take the team to the barn and feed them. And then he said, and at first the boy thought he was still speaking to his brother, come with me. Me? 
He said, yes. His father said, you. Abner, his mother said. His father paused and looked back, the harsh level stare beneath the shaggy, graying, irascible brows. I reckon I'll have a word with the man that aims to begin tomorrow, owing me body and soul for the next eight months. They went back up the road. A week ago, or before last night, that is, he would have asked where they were going, but not now. His father had struck him before last night, but never before had he paused afterward to explain why. It was as if the blow and the following calm, outrageous voice still rang repercussed, divulging nothing to him save the terrible handicap of being young. The light weight of his few years were just heavy enough to prevent his soaring free of the world as it seemed to be ordered, but not heavy enough to keep him footed solid in it, to resist it and try to change the course of its events. Presently, he could see the grove of oaks and cedars and the other flowering trees and shrubs where the house would be, though not the house yet. They walked beside a fence massed with honeysuckle and Cherokee roses and came to a gate swinging open between two brick pillars and now beyond a sweep of drive. Oh, he saw the house for the first time. And at that instant, well, he forgot his father and the terror and despair both. And even when he remembered his father again, who had not stopped, the terror and despair did not return because for all the 12 movings they had sojourned until now in a poor country, a land of small farms and fields and houses, and he had never seen a house like this before. Oh, it's as big as a courthouse, he thought quietly with a surge of peace and joy, whose reason he could not have thought into words, being too young for that. They are safe from him. People whose lives are a part of this peace and dignity are beyond his touch. He, he no more them than a buzzing wasp, capable of stinging for a little moment, and that's all. The spell of this peace and dignity rendering why even the barns and stable and cribs which belong to it impervious to the puny flames he might contrive. Yeah, this, the peace and joy ebbing for an instant as he looked again at the stiff black back, the stiff and implacable limp of the figure, which was not dwarfed by the house for the reason that it, it had never looked big anywhere and which now against the serene columned backdrop had more than ever that impervious quality of something cut ruthlessly from tin, depthless, as though sidewise to the sun it would cast no shadow. Watching him, the boy remarked the absolutely undeviating course which his father held and saw the stiff foot 
come squarely down in a pile of fresh droppings where a horse he had stood in the drive and which his father could have avoided by a simple change of stride. But it ebbed only for a moment, though he could not have thought this into words either, walking on in the spell of the house, which he could want, but without envy, without sorrow, certainly never with that ravening and jealous rage, which unknown to him, walked in the iron-like black coat before him. Maybe he will feel it too. Maybe it will even change him now from what maybe he couldn't help but be. They crossed the portico. Now he could hear his father's stiff foot as it came down on the boards with clock-like finality. A sound out of all proportion to the displacement of the body it bore and which was not dwarfed either by the white door before it, as though it had attained a sort of vicious and ravening minimum not to be dwarfed by anything. The flat, wide black hat, the formal coat of broad cloth, which had once been black, but which now had that friction-glazed greenish cast of the bodies of old houseflies. The lifted sleeve, which was too large, the lifted hand, like a curled claw. Well, the door opened so promptly that the boy knew that the black man must have been watching them all the time. An old man with neat, grizzled hair in a linen jacket, who stood barring the door with his body, saying, Oh, wipe your foots, man, for you come in here. Major ain't home no how. Get out of my way, man, his father said without heat, too, flinging the door back and the man also, and entering his hat still on his head. And now the boy saw the prince of the stiff foot on the door jamb and saw them appear on the pale rug behind the machine-like deliberation of the foot, which seemed to bear or transmit twice the weight which the body compassed. Oh, the black man was shouting, Miss Lula, Miss Lula! Somewhere behind them. And then the boy, deluged as though by a warm wave, by a suave turn, of carpeted stare and a pendant glitter of chandeliers and a mute gleam of gold frames. Heard the swift feet and saw her too, a lady. Perhaps he had never seen her like before either, in a gray smooth gown with lace at the throat and an apron tied at the waist and sleeves turned back wiping cake or biscuit dough from her hands with a towel as she came to the hall, looking not at his father at all, but at the tracks on the blonde rug with an expression of incredulous amazement 
I tried, the black man cried. I told him, will you please go away, she said in a shaking voice. Major de Spain is not at home. Will you please go away? His father had not spoken again. He did not speak again. He did not even look at her. He just stood stiff in the center of the rug in his hat, the shaggy iron-gray brows twitching slightly above the pebble-colored eyes as he appeared to examine the house with brief deliberation. Then, with the same deliberation, he turned. The boy watched him pivot on the good leg and saw the stiff foot drag round the arc of the turning, leaving a final, long and fading smear. Well, his father never looked at it. He never once looked down at that rug. The black man held the door. It closed behind them upon the hysteric and indistinguishable woman wail. His father stopped at the top of the steps and scraped his boot clean on the edge of it. At the gate, he stopped again. He stood for a moment, planted stiffly on the stiff foot, looking back at the house. Pretty and white, ain't it? He said. That's sweat. Slave sweat. Eh, maybe it ain't white enough yet to suit him. Maybe... He wants to mix some white sweat with it. Two hours later, the boy was chopping wood behind the house within which his mother and aunt and the two sisters, ah, the mother and aunt, not the two girls, he knew that, even at this distance and muffled by the walls, the flat, loud voices of the two girls emanated an incorrigible, idle inertia. Were setting up the stove to prepare a meal when he heard the hooves and saw the linen-clad man on a fine sorrel mare, whom he recognized even before he saw the rolled rug in front of the black youth following on a fat bay carriage horse, a suffused, angry face, vanishing, still at full gallop, beyond the corner of the house where his father and brother were sitting in the two tilted chairs. And a moment later, almost before he could put the axe down, he heard the hooves again and watched the sorrel mare go back out of the yard, already galloping again. Then his father began to shout one of the sisters' names, who presently emerged backward from the kitchen door, dragging the rolled rug along the ground by one end, while the other sister walked behind it. Oh, if you ain't gonna tote, go on and set up the wash pot, the first said. You, Sardi, the second shouted. Set up the wash pot. His father appeared at the door, framed against that shabbiness as he had been against 
the other bland perfection, impervious to either. The mother's anxious face at his shoulder. Go on, pick it up, the father said. The two sisters stooped, broad, lethargic. Stooping, they presented an incredible expanse of pale cloth and a flutter of tawdry ribbons. Well, if I thought enough of a rug to have to get it all the way from France, phew, I wouldn't keep it where folks coming in would have to tromp on it, the first said. They raised the rug. Oh, Abner, the mother said, let me do it. You go back and get dinner, his father said. I'll tend to this. From the woodpile through the rest of the afternoon, the boy watched them. The rugs spread flat in the dust beside the bubbling wash pot. The two sisters stooping over it with that profound and lethargic reluctance. While the father stood over them in turn, implacable and grim, driving them, though never raising his voice again. He could smell the harsh, homemade lie they were using. He saw his mother come to the door once and look toward them with an expression not anxious now, but very like despair. He saw his father turn, and he fell to with the axe and saw from the corner of his eye his father raise from the ground a flattish fragment of field stone and examine it and return to the pot, and this time his mother actually spoke. Abner, oh, Abner, please don't. Oh, please, Abner. Come back for part two. Good night.